We're in Acts chapter 23, page 1104 in your pew Bibles. Page 1104, Acts chapter 23. There's a member of uh, our church who works in a firm in Boston, and it's a very difficult place to be a Christian. Uh, she was telling me some of the stories there. Um, for instance, one of the things that's challenging is, is there's a lot of pressure uh, put on her to participate uh, in political activities and to support political candidates uh, whom she just doesn't agree with for, for moral reasons. Uh, as a Christian, she feels like she can't support specific causes or candidates, and there's a lot of pressure. Why aren't you a team player? Why aren't, why aren't you engaging in this? Um, there's pressure to work on Easter Sunday, because who goes to church anyway? She told me a story where uh, once there, there was a really tense sort of situation where the, the firm was having some difficulty, and, and suddenly it was all resolved, and so she said quietly, you know, at work, oh, thank you, Jesus. And someone heard it, and she was told, do not speak the name of Jesus here. This is offensive to people. It's a difficult place to be a Christian. Some of us work in difficult places, or we have families where it's difficult to be a Christian. Not everywhere. Some places are fine, but this is a hard place. Well, sometimes things get even harder. Um, there was a person in that firm, uh, a young, youngish man, 38 years old, who had had cancer and had gone into remission, and then the cancer came back suddenly, dramatically, and he died very quickly and unexpectedly. It shocked everybody, left behind a wife and two small kids. And, and when the news hit the firm of uh, this man's death, the whole firm w- was in a meltdown. Uh, people were, were you know, weeping and hysterical and distraught uh, there in the workplace. And, and, of course, they knew she was a Christian, and, and one of the co-workers came up to her and shook, shook her finger in her face and said, if you believe in God, how can you explain this? Why would God take this man away and leave behind a wife and two children? And then stormed off. It was a difficult day for her. Those, of course, are questions that skeptics ask Christians. Why, if there's a God, does this, this, and this happen? And to be honest, if we're honest as Christians, those are questions we ask ourselves sometimes when things are really hard. And we wonder, God... Why is this happening? God, I, I believe in you, but if, if you love me, what, why this illness or why that loss? Lord, Lord, why, um, you know, why am I single and lonely? Why am I married and miserable? Why, um, why do I struggle with these particular temptations? Why do I have these desires that I don't want? Lord, why did I have this kind of upbringing and, and, the, and this kind of uh, childhood that, that's saddled me with, with uh, responses and, and actions that, that I really don't want? I'm sorting through all of this baggage. God, why does my child have that issue or that problem and everyone else's kids seem perfect? And, and when those challenges come into our lives, we're we're just dumbfounded, and, and we can question God. You know, as Christians, we believe that God is in control. We believe that God is sovereign. Uh, and yet, when, when you're in, in the thick of it, 
it's easy to doubt. We, we believe that in the hurricanes of life, there is an eye where it's calm and God is reigning and in control over the hurricane. But when you're in the hurricane and you're being buffeted by the winds and debris is slamming into you, it's easy to doubt. Well, in our text today, as we continue to study the life of the Apostle Paul, here in the book of Acts, we see that Paul is being hit full force by the hurricane winds. Uh, For those of you who have not maybe been with us the last couple Sundays, or maybe you're new with us, just to give you some background so you can appreciate this passage better that we're about to read, um, the Apostle Paul had spent the last decade plus traveling all over the Greco-Roman world preaching the gospel of Jesus, but now he's come back to Jerusalem, to the mother church, and from the time he sets foot in Jerusalem, it's just been one problem after another. The hurricane has hit Paul in Jerusalem. So, for instance, he came back and people in the church were slandering him and saying, spreading false rumors about him. And so he goes into the temple and his fellow uh, Jewish countrymen turn against him and uh, they accuse him of a crime he didn't commit and a mob forms and attacks him and, and they're beating him. They're starting to beat him to death. And fortunately, the Roman uh, soldiers who were there on the site intervened and rescued Paul But then they put him in prison, and and the Romans want to figure out what it is that Paul has done wrong. So they did what, you know, Romans do when they want to figure out what someone's done wrong. They torture you. So they they get ready to beat and torture Paul, and Paul says, whoa, 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 I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. So he almost gets tortured. So now he's in prison. It's been a really bad homecoming to Jerusalem here for Paul. He's in the hurricane. Well, we pick up the story today, and, you know, sometimes things go from bad to worse. And that's what happens to Paul. So now we pick up the story. The next day, Paul goes on trial before the Sanhedrin, which would have been the supreme Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. The, uh, the, the Roman commander who's there, he doesn't know why everyone wants to kill Paul. He's trying to get to the bottom of it. It's his job to keep the peace. So he brings Paul in front of the Jewish council to see if they can get to the bottom of why everyone wants to kill this guy. So look at chapter 22, verse 30. The next day, since the commander, that's the Roman commander, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. And this is where things start going south even more. Verse 1 of chapter 23, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. At this The high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So, like, if you're going to go on trial, that's a bad start. You know, here's Paul, like, on trial for whatever, and it starts off really bad where he starts to make his defense, and the, you know, the chief justice, like, orders someone to pop him in the mouth. And so he, like, snaps back, and then he realizes that was the chief justice, and now they're all, you know, over him about that. Like, this is a bad start to your trial. This is where you realize you've been put in the wrong court with the wrong judge. You know, like, why did I get picked in this court? Um, 
well, anyway, Paul's in trouble now. God, what are you doing? God, I, you know, why is this happening kind of a situation? So Paul realizes he, he's in trouble, so he has to make some friends and fast. And so we see Paul's wit and intelligence and cleverness in the next verses, verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, these are two sects within Judaism, he called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul looks out and he realizes there are these two kind of subgroups within the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they have different theology, and this group doesn't believe in the resurrection, and this group does believe in the resurrection. Paul was raised as a Pharisee, so Paul exploits that, and he says, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm here because of my belief in the resurrection. Now, of course, the resurrection Paul wants to talk about is the resurrection of Jesus. So he's telling the truth. He's just being clever. He's like, well, I'm here because of the resurrection. Now, of course, it's not the resurrection the Pharisees believed in. They didn't believe that Jesus was risen. And so now Paul, Paul has sort of thrown this monkey into the wrench, and, uh, and, and it, it divides the assembly. And so in verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute, get this, became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Wow, that is just a terrible day at court, right? So in less than 24 hours, Paul has almost been killed by a mob twice. Like that's something that, that's a Facebook post worth posting, you know? That's a tweet, 24 hours, almost killed my mob twice. LOL. Like, 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 like. You know, it's just crazy. This is crazy. Not a good situation. And so Paul goes back to the barracks. And I, I don't know, if I was Paul, I would be a little discouraged at this point. I would be a little anxious at this point. I would be a little confused. I would be thinking, okay, how could this possibly, you know, end well? I'm in a really bad spot. The whole city now knows who, I'm at, knows who I am, and they want to rip me apart. I can't even go to the, the Sanhedrin, to the legal assembly, without a riot breaking out and people trying to beat me to death. So, so what, where am I supposed to go? Well, I can be a prisoner of the Romans. How long is he going to be a prisoner for the Romans? And, and what if the Romans are like, yeah, we don't think you did anything wrong. Here's the front door. See you later. No, he's got to go out there where people are waiting for him. I mean, this is just really bad. Sometimes that happens in life when, when the hurricane is really fierce and the winds are battering against our lives and the debris is flying around and we just think, God, I have no clue how you can bring any good out of this situation. It's just a total, total disaster. And, and you say, yeah, I know, God, you're there and I know you're sovereign and real, but I just have no clue how you could untangle this knot. It's too messy It's too bad. There's just nothing good that can come from this. But then that night, in verse 11, the following night, 
Jesus speaks to Paul. Verse 11 is an amazing verse. As God speaks into the situation, and God tells Paul what he's doing. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord, and whenever it says the Lord in Acts, it's usually referring directly to Jesus. That following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Don't you always wonder, what's God doing? What's the plan? Paul gets told the plan. Wow, this is an amazing moment. So there in the night, you know the night, where you're up from like 2 to 4 a.m. stressing out, when you're awake at night and you can't go back to sleep because your brain is just spinning with all the what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. The night when, when the problems that are this big seem this big. When we panic and we're, we're exhausted night after night and we can't get to sleep because of our worries and our fears. That's when Jesus comes. And he stands near Paul. And what does he say? I love those first two words. Take courage. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. This is what God says when he shows up near his people. I'm here. Take courage. Don't be afraid. And then he tells Paul why he should not be afraid. He lets Paul know what the plan is. He tells him why this storm is happening. He lets Paul in on the secret of what is the 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 game plan behind the scenes in what seems like a chaotic, crazy situation. Verse 11, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's the plan. You've come to Jerusalem, you've testified about me in Jerusalem, and you might think, well, didn't seem like it did any good. (laughs) It doesn't matter what the result is. Our job is to testify. Our job is not to garner a certain response. Sometimes when we testify, there's a revival. Sometimes when we testify, there's a riot. Sometimes there's apathy. There's all kinds of responses. Our, our job is not, to, is, is not to get a certain response out of people. Our, our job is not to convert people. I mean, I wish I could. Sometimes uh, you know, p- people will say that when you're talking to them, like, I don't like Christians. They're always trying to convert you. And, you know, my response is like, yeah, I wish you were converted, but I can't do anything about that. I have no power to convert anybody to anything. Our job is to testify. Whether it's a positive reaction or a negative reaction or a mixed reaction, that's in God's hands. And so Jesus says, Paul, you've testified about me in Jerusalem, and now I want you to testify about me in Rome. That's the plan. And as we're going to see... Rome doesn't just mean in the city. It means in front of Caesar himself. And so this book is going to take us from Jerusalem to Rome, and that's, that's the plan. Okay, I want you to be honest with yourself now, and I'll be honest with myself. If you were in Paul's situation, put yourself in this specific situation, and Jesus appears to you in the middle of the night and says, take courage, here's the plan, you're going to testify in Rome, would you be encouraged? Would you be like, great, you know? Like, I think what 
a lot of us, and maybe myself if I'm honest, would really want to hear is, take courage, Paul. I'm about to beam you out of this situation. (laughs) Take courage, Paul. I'm about to make all your problems disappear in a puff of miraculous smoke. Take courage, Paul. I'm going to fix all of it right now. Fixed. That's what we want to hear. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, take courage. Have you testified about me in, in Jerusalem? You'll testify about me in Rome. Take courage. Take courage in the face of your disease. Because you're going to testify about me to your oncologist. Is that the news we want? That's sometimes the plan. Take courage. T- take courage as you wrestle with you know, the, the temptations that you face. Take courage as, as you wrestle with your unwanted same-sex attraction. Take courage as, as you just deal with this baggage of your childhood and, and the nasty things you had to live through and you're trying to fight through that junk. Take courage. I will use that as a platform for you to testify about me and to glorify my name. Take courage as your child just seems to be going off the deep end and you've done everything you thought right. And and it's like, why does my kid have this problem and everyone else's kids don't, it seems? Take courage. God wants to use that as a platform for glorifying him and testifying about him. That's the plan. What if that's the plan? And what we wish Jesus would say is, take courage, I'm going to fix everything right now fixed. You're better. Go off and watch TV. It's all good. But that's not the plan. I think trials, perhaps more than anything else, are, are the, the, the most powerful tool of personal transformation that God uses in our lives. None of us like that. None of us like trials and pain. But how many times have we as Christians gone through a dark valley and come out the other side? And, and Christians say, I would never, ever want to go through that again or wish it on anybody else but I'm so thankful for what God has shown me and taught me through that trial. This is how the Lord so often works. He he takes us through difficulties. And and so when we go through trials, so often the Lord is using that to sift us and purify us and burn away bad theology and burn away idols and make us truly his. You you know, uh, trials reveal our bad views of God. So often we have a kind of, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, a consumeristic view of God, where it's I'm the consumer and God is the service provider and God gives me what I need. And if God doesn't make my life the way I wanted, then I get mad. You know, Jesus is my vending machine. And I get the coins out and I put in the prayer coin and I get the, I go to church coin and I, not an axe murderer coin or whatever. And then I hit the vend button and out comes you know, comfortable suburban life without major problems. You know, ooh, I love this. It's fizzy. You know, it's, that's what we want is Jesus to provide that. And, and when he doesn't, and, and, and when you do follow him and you do serve him and things like this get worse and then they get worse and then worse, and then we start to rail against God like, like that person in the office shaking our finger. Why are you doing this? But so often what God is doing is, is he's, destroying that operating system in our hearts that would tell us that it's about our personal comfort and happiness as defined by us. I believe, by the way, God is for our happiness. But it's happiness in him, 
not happiness in the things of this world. God is a happiness for you that's greater than anything this world can offer. It's the happiness in himself. God's not anti-happiness. He's, he's anti-bad happiness, weak happiness. He doesn't want us to settle for mud pies when he has a banquet in his presence. And so he's weaning us off those things, and he's, he's destroying that so that we might come to that place in trials and suffering where we learn to treasure Jesus himself, not the things Jesus does for us. God, God wants to bring us to a place where our treasure and our joy is in Christ, where he is the pearl of great price for whom we would sell everything to gain him that we'd be able to say with Paul, I consider this world rubbish that I may gain Christ. He wants to get our hearts there. He wants that operating system in our souls. So that when he would say to us, take courage, I'm going to use this mess you're in for my glory, there would be a part of us that would be like, yes, that's really what I want. And I want people to know the same Christ that I know. And I want people to treasure the same Jesus that I've come to treasure. And, and when Christ is your treasure, then trials that give you a platform for talking about him are welcomed. Not that we want to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer. Of course not. Of course we want God to take the pain away. And you know what? Someday he will. That's the promise of eternal life. No more sorrow. No more tears. But for now, we're called to stand and testify and to glorify God and to show the world that Christ is worth more than even anything this world can offer us as we glorify him. And, and, and people do it. You know, they testify and they glorify him in the midst of suffering. I think one of the, the, the cool things that I've seen in our church over the years is, is uh, sometimes when members are going through illness, and difficulty, and sometimes they're in a wheelchair, and, they, and that's, they come to church, and that's all they can do because they're not strong enough, and, and, and you know, there's a temptation to, like, not come to church because, you know, who wants to be seen in a wheelchair if you've been able-bodied before that? It's, it's humiliating to a degree. It's hard, but they come, and they sit in our service because they want to glorify God. They want to worship Him in the midst of their difficulty, God is glorifying that. That's a testimony. Even if that's all you can do, it's a testimony to God and his worth and his value. I remember uh, when my dad was really sick with cancer. Some of you know uh, who have been here, my dad died about two years ago, and he was a member of the church here uh, when they moved out here from uh, Las Vegas. And, and, you know, one of the sayings my dad would say, uh, especially in the last couple of years, it's sort of like his, it was like his line, his kind of mantra. He would often say, Whatever happens, I want to glorify God. That was just like his, his thing, he would say. And, uh, you know, he said it a lot, and it finally stuck with me. And I'm like, that's it. No matter what happens, I want to glorify God. And when that is our heart's attitude, even if God has to use terrible circumstances to refine us to that point, then verse 11 is good news. Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And once we're there, it starts to give us a different perspective on our circumstances. We, we look at our life circumstances, and, and we start looking for the hand of God, and we start to wonder. We're like, hmm, I wonder what God's going to do. I have no idea 
how God can do anything good in this, but I can't wait to see how he's going to do it. God, how are you going to get glory out of the situation? Lord, will there be an opportunity for me in this situation to testify to you and to tell people about you, Jesus? And we start looking for it. Those little providential, serendipitous things. And sure enough, they start happening in this story. Look back at the story. So things are bad, but in verse 12, they get even worse. The next morning... The Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. So, you know, it can always get worse. Like, you know, it was bad, and then now Paul has 40-plus oath-sworn assassins waiting to ambush him. So just remember that. You know, you're like, this is bad, but just remember, it can always get worse. I mean, you don't have 40 assassins hunting you, do you? Like, you could have 40 assassins. It could always get worse. Well, it's gotten worse for Paul. But there in the midst of this situation where he's being ambushed, where he's being targeted, there we see the finger of God in a coincidence in verse 16. When the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, God is at work. Nothing's going to stop Jesus' plan. If Jesus says Paul's going to testify before Caesar in Rome, that's what's going to happen. And God begins to work and Paul's nephew just happens to overhear it and just happens to be Paul's nephew, right? Just, and that's how it is. You know, one of the things I've observed over the, the years of being a pastor here, um, I haven't been a pastor as long as some, but I've been, I've been a pastor long enough that I've seen a pattern in how God deals with people in the midst of suffering. I've, I've had a, the privilege of walking alongside so many of you through all kinds of dark valleys in your life of all sorts. And, and as I've come alongside you guys, what I've noticed is that sometimes, not always, God fixes the situation. It happens. Sometimes we pray and God intervenes. I talked to a guy this morning who I just heard about a bad situation last week and he told me just this week God like removed it. And it was like, wow, praise God. But my observation, my experience, that's the minority example of how God works. More often what I've seen is that God walks with us through those difficult times. He allows us to go for a season on a difficult journey, maybe even years. But then what he does, rather than fixing it, is that he, he leaves a trail of breadcrumbs. He shows us that he's with us. He reminds us. There's little coincidences. There's little things. You get a phone call or this happens, and you're like, why did that happen? God is still with me. And, and he just gives you just enough breadcrumbs to keep you going and encouraging you along the way. I've, I've just seen him do this in people's lives. And it's not enough to fix the situation, but it's enough to tell him, tell you, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm with you. And so Paul is not airlifted out of this prison. God doesn't beam him out of this bad situation, though God can certainly do that and has done that at times. But in this case... God gives a little evidence that he's still with him. His nephew happens to overhear the plot. So continue the story, verse 17. 
Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and says, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Wow, now the commander's got a problem, okay? He's got a big problem. He's got a Roman citizen in custody with no formal charges filed, and that Roman citizen is being threatened by assassins who who are manipulating the system to try to create a, a window of opportunity to strike. This is a bad situation. This, this Roman commander, if this goes down and he can't protect an innocent Roman citizen, he's got a problem on his hands. So he does what any good soldier would do in that circumstance. He covers his own behind. And in verse 23, he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So, so they send Paul to Caesarea, which is 60 miles sort of northwest of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean coast. It was the, the seat of the, the governor of the area. And, uh, and he says, Paul's going to sneak out at night, and we're going to send him with 470 soldiers. And you've got to love that, right? It's as if God's like, all right, I'll see your 40 assassins. And I'll raise you 470 hardened legionnaires. There you go. God's taxi service for Paul is the Roman legion. How awesome is that? On Rome's dime, this evangelist is being transported to Caesarea. God can do anything. God is at work. God even uses this this plot as the way that he's going to get Paul out of there. And then the Roman legionnaire, uh, rather the, the commander of the the detachment there in Jerusalem, writes a letter, verse 25. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, that's the Roman commander's name. When you wrote a a letter in ancient Greek, you would start with your name and then the recipient. To his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. Not quite true, but it makes him look good. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or punishment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present you, to present you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night, brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered a letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Amazing. And so begins the first leg of the journey from Jerusalem to Rome. God is going to bring Paul there to testify. And that's what God does. 
he, he can use difficult, terrible circumstances to create openings, to create platforms and opportunities for us to glorify him publicly and, and to testify to him. And when our hearts are for God's glory, that's good news that we see that God can do that. That's what happened to our, our friend from the church, a church member. She uh, was in a difficult workplace where people were not excited about her faith, were actually openly hostile to it, and then that guy died, and then the office melted down, and, and people, one woman is shaking her finger in her face, so she's just going she went back to her desk, and she tried to focus and do her work, and suddenly an instant message popped up on her computer, and it said from another coworker, do you believe in life after death? And she said, well, I believe in eternal life. And the person wrote back, you know, what is that? And how can I have eternal life? And she's like, I never have this kind of conversation in this office. So, you know, she did one of those like, help me, Jesus. Okay. And she, she wrote back and she told about how Jesus died and rose again and that through faith in Christ there is eternal life. She testified that there is salvation, but it's not through us being good people or spiritual people that salvation is a gift from God through faith in Jesus. And she sent that off, and then there was no response. And then like 30 minutes later, more questions. So she's about to write that when someone knocks on the door and comes into the office. Hey, you believe in God. What, what do you think about this? What, what do you think? How, why would God do this? And so she's about to answer that person, another person comes in the office. Hey, what do you think? You're a Christian, right? And then the phone rings, and it's another person who wants to talk about this with her because she's a Christian. So all at once, she has an I am waiting for a response, two people in the office, and someone on the phone. And all of a sudden, she's testifying to all of these people about her hope in Christ and her hope in the Savior. And, and you know, she went from like being hostile to having too many evangelistic opportunities. And so she did her best and said she wanted to connect with people individually. And, and that's still, you know, that's still ongoing. That, that's still an open sort of case for her in the workplace. It's amazing. But God does that. God uses us in our different situations. I know for many of you, you've told me the stories. I've heard them of how God has used you in your cancer, to testify to your oncologist, to testify to the nurses. You've sat in chairs p- pumping chemo into your bodies while you testified to the person next to you in the chair next to you. You've told me these stories. It's amazing to me. My own mom and dad got to testify to their oncologist. You know, when, they, when, the, when the doctor says, well, how are you doing with all this? That's a platform right there. I'll tell you how I'm doing, and I'll tell you why I'm doing Okay as best I can, because the Lord Jesus. And so you can share your faith. God uses these opportunities. And should we be surprised? Should this be like a big surprise to us that God uses our suffering and trials and the hurricanes in our life to bring about opportunities for his glory? Because at the center of our faith, at the very epicenter of everything we believe at the the core of what drives us and identifies us as Christians is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the center of it all. We believe that 
God sent his son to die on the cross to bear our sins, that the greatest news in the world that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God came as a result of the worst thing that ever happened. That on the cross, the the full category five hurricane of the fury of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. That on the cross, he he was taking and absorbing the consequences of our sins that he didn't deserve. I mean, it's, it's terrible and it's wonderful. But doesn't that, doesn't it move you at all to think that God would send his own son to bear the wrath of God against sin for me and for you? It's astounding. And so in light of such a great salvation at such an infinite cost, should we be at all surprised if God is often pleased to take the news of that cross and have it borne by suffering servants? That God has not only called us to preach a crucified Messiah, but to do it in a cross-shaped way. That we're not only preaching about the salvation through the sufferings of Christ, but that he calls us to suffer as a testimony to the saving power of God. Is that surprising to us, that God works in this way? There's another member of our church, another lady. Her name's Pam. And Pam had a hurricane drop into her life out of the clear blue. Uh, she, uh, her whole department from her company got outsourced, you know, and, which was a big surprise because her her. Uh, department was doing really good. They were saving a lot of money for the company. And then it was just one of those like, well, guess what the news is this morning? You're all being outsourced. And it was a huge shock and really traumatic. And so she got sent to an outplacement service that this company that she used to work for uses. And so she, she had an appointment at this out, outplacement service, but she didn't, you know, she didn't want to go right away and she was waiting. And finally, after a few weeks, she, she called up the person that she was supposed to contact in the, the outsourcing place and it just so happened, coincidentally, right, that on that day, the woman she was supposed to call, that woman's mother had to go in for surgery, and so this, this outsourcing lady had to step away from the project for a while, and so Pam got reassigned to another guy named Joe. Just coincidentally got to know Joe, and Joe loved to talk, and they got talking, and they got sharing, and, and she started talking about Jesus. She had an opportunity, and Joe was interested, and they started sharing back and forth about that. She was testifying to Joe about the Lord. And, you know, Joe is like, probably like a lot of us. Joe had the story, maybe like a lot of us, where he was raised in a church. Um, and he, he went to church and did all the things throughout his whole life, but didn't really connect here. It was just kind of like go through the motions, but it, he didn't understand the relevance of it. He, he, didn't, he didn't have a personal relationship with God. It was just kind of a good church-going guy. But she was talking about a, a true faith in Jesus, knowing the Lord, and, and that intrigued Joe. Then she said to Joe, you know, you ought to really listen to some sermons. And so she sent some sermon links to him, and he listened. And then eventually she said, you know, you really ought to, you ought to come to church with me. And Joe was like, well, okay, you know, I'll come to church. And then after a while she said, Joe, you ought to come to a Bible study with me. 
And Joe was like, okay, I'll, I'll come to Bible study, which is really intimidating. You know, if, if, you're, if you're not a church-going person, you've read the Bible, and, and someone says, hey, come to a Bible study, like that's super intimidating. We need to remember that as Christians, right? That, that'd be like if, if someone said, hey, I have this group of people, and, and we read and enact Shakespeare's works uh, on every Wednesday night. Like, you should come. It's great. Just jump right in. Study Shakespeare, you know? He'd be like, uh, I don't know if I'm really ready for that. But anyway, this guy was brave, and he said, I'm going to come, come to this Bible study. And, and so through studying God's Word and really reading the Bible for himself, Joe, Joe says, you know, he, he says he had a Bible, but in like, you know, decades, he probably only read it three or four times, and that was mainly to get answers to crossword puzzle questions. So he, you know, he didn't, he didn't know the Bible. He started reading about Jesus himself, and, and then on Easter Sunday, 2014, it finally all clicked. And Joe went from just understanding the facts that Jesus died and rose again to realizing Jesus had died for him and rose for him. And it suddenly became personal and he put his faith in Christ. And some of you know the story uh, because about a month ago Joe was baptized. Retired guy, but the Lord found him. And so God used that layoff, that downturn, as a platform for Pam to testify to Joe and for, for God to work in his life. That's how God works. Isn't that encouraging? Couldn't, could it really be possible that God would send someone to testify to you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ yet and you're, you're sort of sorting out this Christianity thing. Like, like what if... It's not only true that God sent his own son, Jesus, to die and rise again in order to save sinners, but what if God is specifically coming for you to testify to you? You know, what if salvation isn't just a big banner drug behind an airplane in the sky over the beach on a Saturday morning? You know, whoever wants to be saved, here's the number, call God, it's up to you. But what if the way it works is that God not only sent Jesus to die for his people, but then he sends suffering servants out to specifically find you and testify to you. What if it's that personalized? What what, what if it's not a a, a kind of blanket treatment, but it's a, a targeted treatment, like genetic therapy specifically designed for you, and that God sends specific people in specific circumstances to testify to save you? What if it's that kind of God who's that into your business and who loves you that much? Will you really close your heart to him? Won't you open your heart to the Lord and know that there is a Savior and that he doesn't save generically by the basketful, but one by one as he sends his suffering servants to testify. And may he give us grace as his people not to despair in the midst of the hurricane, but instead to look with these crazy gospel eyes that would say, Lord, where can I glorify you and testify to you in the midst of this mess? Let's pray and ask God to give us grace to do just that. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we humble ourselves before you and worship you. 
Oh, Jesus, we thank You that You courageously bore the full brunt of God's wrath for our sins. And that through Your death and Your resurrection, there is hope of forgiveness and a new life with God. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank You for saving us, and we pray that You would help our hearts to treasure You above all else that you, Jesus, would be our heart's desire. And so that when you send difficult things into our lives, Lord, that we would rejoice at the thought that you might use our pain and our suffering for your glory and a testimony to the gospel. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray specifically now for any brothers and sisters here who are neck deep in hard things. Oh, Lord, would you give them grace to burn away the old vending machine theology And Lord, would you give them a heart that treasures Christ above all else? Would you give them strength to testify and to see the opportunities and to not be numb to them, but to take them and to speak up for you even when they feel exhausted and have no strength to testify? Oh, Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, would you please reach into their lives through the hands and the voices and the hugs of suffering Christians so that they might see, not only hear the message of the gospel, but see it enacted through the humble, broken servants that you use in this world. Oh God, use us, we pray. The time is short. Our lives will be over in a blink. Help us not to cling to this life. Lord, help us to see this life in light of eternity. And God, help us to let it all go to be your servants, we pray in Christ's name, amen.